If you have your Bible with you, um, how about if you go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 19. And if you didn't bring one with you, they're in the, the pew rack in front of you. If you need a Bible, uh, feel free to take one of those with you when you leave today. If you don't own a Bible, we really want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hand. So consider that a gift from us. We'd like for you to take a Bible with you when you leave if you, if you don't own one. Uh, but you can pick one up out of the pew rack and follow along that way, or you'll see the passages up on the screen as well. But here's the background. Um, the story that you're about to see in Matthew 19 is also found in Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke told the same story. And what we find is a period of time in which uh, the Pharisees are really, really ticked off at Jesus. Big surprise, right? Okay. So they're mad at him because of several things. One is that um, he began teaching about money in Matthew chapter 15. And he begins talking about the way that they're using it and, and abusing it. And then in Matthew chapter 17, he begins talking about their relationships to other people and how they value people more than they do value their relationship with God. And, and then he really drills down on them and he begins agitating them because he's allowing people who have a very sinful lifestyle to hang around with him. And the Pharisees are ticked off about this. So that's the background. And in the midst of this setting in Matthew 19, Jesus is among these leaders, and there's a large group of people. And we find in Matthew 19, a young man who's pretty wealthy comes up to Jesus, and this is where we pick up in verse 16. You'll see it on the screen. It says, Behold, and behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, Mark tells us and Luke tells us that he's really young. And you'll see in verse 20, it says the same thing in Matthew 19. Um, so the word that's, that's used here, the little Greek word is ninaskos, and it means somebody between the age of 20 and 40 years of age. We're not sure where he falls, but he's in this age category. We're also told in verse 22 that he's really wealthy. He's got uh, pretty substantial holdings because we're going to see in a minute he owns a lot of property. Now, what this tells me is he probably inherited his wealth. There's no dot-com millionaires in the first century, right? So most likely, if he hadn't lived long enough to earn the money himself, he's received a large inheritance from his parents. So he's probably not had to earn it. So he's grown up with privilege. So we have here a young man who's religious. He's honest. He's wealthy. He's prominent. And he's very influential in the community. And he seems to have it all. So let's try and get inside his head. What's he thinking? Because in Mark, you're going to see in Mark chapter 10, he doesn't just come up and talk to Jesus. Look at this verse on the screen. Mark 10, 17 says he actually goes on his knees before Jesus. That tells me he's not embarrassed. He's not afraid to be seen by the Pharisees and the very large crowd. Even though he's influential, he's not afraid to lose face. He's willing to come up and just feel the need so deeply he begins asking Jesus, what do I have to do to get eternal life? Now, he's come to the right source, would you agree? I mean, if you're going to ask anybody about how to get eternal life, you want to go to Jesus, right? So he's come to the right source, but he's kind of asked the wrong question. You notice the phrasing of his question? He says, what good deed must I do to get eternal life? See, it's very clear he knows something is lacking. And of all the things he owns... He knows he doesn't own one thing. There's something that he doesn't possess yet. Now, he's been trained to think doing things will earn God's favor. He's been raised up thinking, if I do this and I do this and I do this, maybe God will like me enough. 
So he's been trained to think that way, and the fact that he came publicly asking means most of the crowd's probably thinking that same way. So he's really sincere, but he's focused on works, which was really common in the first century. People thinking they can do enough good things to earn their way to God, as opposed to realizing it only came through Christ. Now, what's amazing is not this young man. What's amazing is Jesus' response to this young man. Absolutely fascinating. Now, I want you to notice as we work through this passage, Jesus is the master at redirecting conversation. You ever see one, I want to see someone who can take a conversation and turn it on a dime, just study Jesus' conversation style. And he does exactly that with this guy. Just imagine being in a coffee shop. And maybe you're looking at your laptop or you got your iPad in front of you or you're reading a book and someone comes up and taps you on the, on the shoulder and says to you, by any chance, could you tell me how to find eternal life? First of all, it's a hard conversation to imagine, right? But imagine if somebody did that and you're a strong believer in Jesus Christ, the reality is you're probably going to break into the four spiritual laws or, or you're going to begin talking about the threefold step to no salvation. That's not what Jesus does here. Instead of telling him he has to believe, Jesus presents an enormous question to this guy. And it's based on what Luke and Mark recorded that Matthew doesn't record. Matthew says, he said, what good deed must I do? But Luke and Mark said that when he first came up and he went on his knees, he said to Jesus, good teacher, what good thing must I do? So Jesus retorts with this, why are you talking about good? There's only one who is good. Here's what he's doing. He's forcing this guy to think seriously about the word good. He's forcing him to think about the word that he just chose more than just trying to flatter Jesus. So that's why he says only God is good. In other words, do you believe that I'm good and therefore you believe that I'm God? Causing him to really calculate. Why are you asking this? So let's drill down deep because in verse 17 he takes him to a whole new level. That's when he says, you want to enter life? Keep the commandments. And without any breathing room whatsoever, he goes into the Big Ten. Why bring up the Big Ten at this moment in time? Well, there's a purpose behind the Ten Commandments. The law served a very specific purpose. Bible scholars here that love to comment, what's the purpose of the law? Why the Old Testament? Why does it exist? Somebody said it, that's right, to point out sin, to show us sin, so that we would understand what sin looks like. So look with me on the screen, Romans 3.20 says this, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's why we have the Ten Commandments. That's why we have the law, because it gives us a measuring rod. So the purpose of the law is to expose our sins so that we know that we fall short. So why does he bring up the Big Ten at this point? Because before any man can act, he first has to realize, hey, I'm a sinner. Jesus doesn't bring up the law to tell him how to be saved. He brings up the law to show him he needs to be saved. So the law is like a mirror. When you look at the Ten Commandments, it's like that full-length mirror in your house. You have one of those? You have one in your closet? Maybe it's hanging on the back of a door someplace, and it shows you things you really don't want to see, right? I mean, mine does. There's just things that day in and day out, your mirror shows you things like our flaws. Well, the Bible says in James 1, that's what the Old Testament is. That's what the Ten Commandments are. It's a full-length mirror. And it shows you naked, things that you don't really want to see. Now, Jesus goes even a step further when he says, keep the commandments. Here's why. The Jews were taught that if you want life, you not just obey the commandments, you keep them perfectly without any flaw. In other words, obedience to God. Here's an example of this. 
Ezekiel 20.13. God speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. He said this, Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances, meaning the commandments, by which if a man observes them, he will live. And my Sabbaths, they, my Sabbaths, they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. Not necessarily a good day when God tells you he's going to annihilate you, right? I mean, that's not a day that's going to end very well at all. So you hear that God's going to annihilate. Why? Because they violated the law. They are not keeping his ordinances. Here's kind of a hard shift on a question for you. Is it possible to long for the things of God, but not for God himself? I think it is. And I think we see an example of that today. A young man who wants eternal life, but not necessarily the relationship with God it takes to get that. See, to walk with Jesus is not a method of just adding something better to the resume. It's not just one more car in the garage. It's not just one more life insurance policy. It's not just to back you up. Now, it's really interesting that Jesus doesn't offer any relief to the tension of this conversation whatsoever. Instead, what he does is he confronts him with a proper view of God to help him understand who God is and who he is in the eyes of God. That's why he brings up the Ten Commandments. So, if we accept that the Ten Commandments are God's standard, in other words, he set the bar, that means anything less than the bar is unacceptable, right? That's God's standard of behavior. And God said, you come under that, you fail. So a proper view of God causes us to have an accurate view of ourselves. when he holds up that mirror and said, this is what perfection looks like. How you doing with that? When you look in that mirror. Now, this is the young man's response. It says in verse 18, he said to him, which ones? Odd. And Jesus said, well, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Kind of odd, isn't it? And not Jesus' response, but the young man's response. That he would say, which ones? Now, in the last couple of weeks, you learned that every young child in Israel, starting at age six, went to Beth Sefer. And at Beth Sefer, they began learning Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, memorizing it. So if we're going to get inside the head of this young man, he's probably thinking at this point, Which ones? Because I memorized them all. As a boy, carefully, I kept them. How could I have missed any? Which one could Jesus possibly be talking about? How is that possible? Here's the reaction I have to that. As though one part of God's law can be separated from another, putting some into the lesser and greater category. That's missing the whole purpose. Look what James said about this. James, the brother of Jesus, James 2.10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So you can't just miss one and be good. You miss one and you cancel them all out. So if the law represents God, to disobey a minor law, that's still rebelling against God. And here's what I want you to notice. Jesus is challenging him on the measuring rod of the least impossible commandments. Do you notice that he didn't even mention the top four, the very first ones? Number one, you shall have no other God before me. He doesn't even mention that. He's referring to the ones of man's relationship to man. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. So look at the young man's response to this. Verse 20, 
The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? You want to look at that and say, really? Are you going to go with that, really? You've kept all of the commandments perfectly, and you're going to tell Jesus that you've kept all the commandments? Uh, Here's why he said that. Given a literal interpretation of the Ten Commandments, in other words, the way that the first century Jew thought about it, when they're looking at, have you murdered? No, I can cross that one off. Have you committed adultery? No, cross that one off. Have you lied and bear false witness? No, I can cross that one off. Well, he's looking at it through the lens of the literal interpretation, but when Jesus arrives on the scene, what does he say? If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Has he said that he's not lying at all whatsoever? No, he's, he's thinking in the framework of the first century Jew. I've never lied in court. I haven't been bearing false witness. Now, here's what I notice. Jesus doesn't challenge the claim. He could have, like he did with the woman at the well. I mean, he could have really gone deep and start pointing out all the flaws. But he's, he's willing to go with this one saying, I've kept all these. So here's Jesus' response, verse 21. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect... Go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. You have anybody in your life that's able to push your buttons? Don't look at them if they're sitting next to you. (laughs) Jesus has just pushed the biggest button in his life. There's no bigger button. He's going after the very heart of who this young guy is. Now, nowhere in the Bible are we taught that salvation comes by selling our goods and giving the money away. What Jesus is doing, he's forcing him to examine his priorities. So in essence, he's saying, if you really desire eternal life, then live up to the law. That's why he's raising the commandments. Then live up to the law. And the law says, love your neighbors yourself. So give them your Lamborghini. Give them your Rolex watch. You, you love your neighbor as much as you love yourself, and you apparently really love yourself, give him what you got. See, he's challenging with his wealth in order to force him to admit what's most valuable to him because his possessions are his God, small g. So in verse 20, he says, all these things I have kept. That's sincere. He probably really believed that, but it's far from being true. John MacArthur had an interesting insight into this. Let me show you his quote on the screen. John said, Because pride is at the heart of all sin, there is a natural inclination toward self-deceit. We're pretty good at that. So let's talk about virtual perfection versus true perfection. Because this young man has come to this conversation with this framework that he's virtually perfect. He believes because he has never murdered anyone, because he's never committed physical adultery, because he's never lied in court, he looks on himself as being virtually perfect. Yet look at the body language. He knows he's lacking something or he wouldn't be there in the first place saying, how do I get eternal life? If he knows the law and the law says, keep the law and you'll know life, why is he there in the first place? Because he knows he hasn't kept the law. Therefore, he's really not looking for what God alone can do for him. He's looking for what he can do for God. Here's the truth. Salvation is for people who hit a point of absolute desperation in their life. The point at which we recognize we can't do this on our own. We can't possibly be good enough to stand before a holy God. It requires a mediator on our behalf, the one who shed his blood on the cross. 
And so this young man, it's possible that he has not yet recognized his need for mercy. And until he does, until he recognizes the magnitude of his sin by the lens of the Ten Commandments, he's hopeless at this point. That's why Galatians 3.24 says this, the law precedes grace. It is the tutor that leads to Christ. Jesus has really just hit a sensitive nerve with this guy. And it, it hurts because there's no better way to find out what your priorities really are than to ask you to give up the very thing that you hold on to. And notice what Jesus tags it with. Verse 21, he says, not only sell it, but come and follow me as a result of selling. See, it wouldn't do any good if you just sold it and gave it to the poor. It's like you're trying to buy your salvation. That's not enough. Jesus says, follow me. Literally, go on the road with me. Because if you're not going to follow him and there's no relationship, it produces nothing according to what 1 Corinthians says. So here's the big fail in this young man's life. Exodus 20 verse 3 says this, You shall have no other gods before me. First of the big ten. He's failed. He's made a god of his wealth. And he's facing the reality that he worships at the altar of the god of self-sufficiency. But let me bring you forward into time. In 2013, Jesus makes the same identical requirement of us. Lest we think that that just applies to this young man. If there's anything that gets in the way of our relationship with Christ, we fail. Verse 22 says this, this is, how he, this is how he responded. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's the English Standard Version. NASB says he has great property. He owned a lot of land. Now, the first part of Jesus' command, the first thing he said to do, go and sell, he could have done that in his own power and his own ability. He absolutely could have followed through with that one. He chose not to, not because he cannot, because he will not. So the property that he thinks he owns really owns him. And this became the supreme obstacle in his life. Do you have one of those in your life? Do you have a supreme obstacle? Uh, Unsaved boyfriend, maybe. Maybe it's a girlfriend. Maybe it's an addiction or a career. Something that is holding you back from knowing God fully, that you're not willing to surrender. The, the truth this morning is there are many who are penniless who are just as far from the kingdom of God as this rich young ruler. It, it all call, comes in all sorts. That just happens to be his issue. So look at how Jesus responds to this because now he's just got the disciples there and he's talking to them. Verse 23, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you've been around New Hope any length of time, you know that when the Bible says truly, it means pay attention. When Jesus says truly, it means now hear this. In other words, what's about to come is really, really important. So he uses this imagery of the camel and the eye of the needle. I've heard that explained a lot of different ways. Um, just understand this. It's a Jewish expression from the first century that means something's impossible. Something is extremely, extremely difficult. One of the most popular versions of interpreting it is that there was a gate outside the uh, walls of Jerusalem, and the gate was called the eye of the needle. 
and it was so low to the ground and so short that camels couldn't go through it and they had to get on their knees to go through it. Well, the truth is there's no archaeological evidence for that definition. Here's what Jesus is trying to communicate. Something drastic. And he's using humor to do it. Trying to say, you guys get this? It's humanly impossible. Why is it so difficult? Especially for those who have great wealth. And I've known a lot of people who've had great wealth over the course of my life. Some are very, very godly and some who are living far from God. Why is it so difficult, especially for rich people? Because typically they're tied to their bank accounts and to their investments. And great wealth tends to cause us to imagine that we don't need God. You know where that comes from? It comes from an attitude of the heart. Paul actually wrote to Timothy about this very issue. And lest you think that maybe this isn't applying to you, you really need to check yourself because you do live in America and we live in a very, very prosperous nation. Whether you feel wealthy or not, let's look at it through the lens of how Paul wrote this. 1, Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 6.17 says this, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. That word conceited, do you know what that means? Arrogant. The very thing that God despises. When we come to the throne and we're full of arrogance, we can't really come to the throne because we haven't surrendered everything. Paul says this is the core issue. It's not the money. It's the arrogance that goes with the money. And therein is the flaw. Because this young man thought he had the resources. And he thought that he could work his way into the kingdom and do something great for God. The point is not his wealth but his trust in his wealth, his ability to meet God's standard, as opposed to God reaching out to him. Anyone trying to get saved on his own terms, that person is the absolute impossibility that Jesus is talking about here when he says the eye of the, camel of the, the, eye of the needle for the camel. Let's look at the disciples' response, verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Understand, this principle that Jesus is talking about is shocking to the first century Jews. They've never heard of anything like this. It's completely contrary to what they were raised with. So my Bible says, greatly astonished. That means megas, exclepio. Yeah, I can't let you out of here without one Greek word. So let me put this first one on the screen for you. This, this word astonished, look at the definition for it. <laughs> I'm just messing with you. It's my daughter's favorite phrase when she hears something that's astonishing to her. It's, wait, what? What are you talking about? This is the actual Greek definition for it. Uh, Explesso. <laughs> to strike with astonishment. It's the first century version of, wait, what? What are you saying? How could you possibly communicate that? Here's why. The rabbis taught that an accumulation of wealth was a virtue unmatched. And when God blesses you with wealth, it is unwise and sinful for a person to give away too much of their wealth. So they actually devised laws by which they would prevent people from giving away too much. It was part of the culture of that period of time. So the, the disciples are looking at it through that lens. They're trying to understand how could he be teaching something contrary to the rabbis? Here's what they were thinking. The rich people can afford the largest sheep and the most beautiful sheep 
to bring to the sacrificial altar on Passover day. The, the rich people can give the most money to the synagogue. They can write the biggest check. The rich people never run out of money to drop into one of the 13 trumpets that are in the temple. Let me explain that to you briefly. In, in the temple in Jerusalem, there were what looked like trumpets, what we would call trumpets today. They're large receptacles that stood about this high and are made of brass so that when someone walked by and dropped money into it, it would make a ringing sound as the coins spun around to the bottom. So there's, there's the trumpet of the Compassionate Care Fund and the trumpet of the Widow's Fund and the, the trumpet of the Missionary Fund and the trumpet of the, the General Offering. And the wealthy people loved to stand in the temple in the court of women and drop their coins in because it would make this loud ringing sound so everybody would know. For Jesus to teach wealth is a barrier diametrically contradicts everything they've ever accepted. That's why they're so astonished. So they're not just surprised. This cuts clean across everything that the disciples know. Here's why. If God had blessed the rich and what they received was completely from His hand, what possible hope was there then for the poor? That's why we're told they're bewildered and they say, who can be saved? Because their question reflects their theology. They're asking the question based on what they've been trained to think. So they're totally missing the point. Jesus has used humor to drive the point home. In other words, it's humanly impossible for any of us to get into the kingdom of heaven on our own. Whether you're rich or poor, it's just very, very difficult when you've got great wealth because it becomes an obstacle. So humanly speaking, Jesus is saying no one. Here's where I want to end because this next verse, verse 26, picture it this way. Think of a military term. When I use the phrase radar lock, you think of something that's fixed. One version of the Bible says that Jesus fixed his gaze on them. Another one says he looked hard at them. Here's what it says in verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So he looks hard at them and he's clarifying two very specific things. The sheer impossibility of any human action to bring about salvation. It's just not possible on our own without a Savior. And the second part is, the truth is, God is not limited in any way. That's code for apart from Jesus, you can't get in. It's just not going to happen. Salvation is impossible. Now just so we're really clear as we end this this morning, Jesus did not say possessing wealth kept a man from the kingdom. What he's saying is, if the wealth possesses you, it's a problem. Abraham was very, very wealthy. He was a man of great faith, wasn't he? But very, very wealthy. The wealth didn't possess him. So we picture in our mind this long, sad walk. We've got this young man who's got everything. He drives the sports car up. He races over to Jesus, and he falls at his feet and says, how do I get eternal life? I've, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. What do I have to do? I know I'm lacking something. And Jesus gives him a straightforward answer. You're looking for it on the basis of your own human resources. It would be really, really easy this morning in 2013 to say that applied to that guy in the first century or that applies to a different class of people, but it doesn't apply to me. But let's put it in the context of our day and age. What does our culture value? Our culture really values youth. When you're young, you're vital. You got your entire future ahead of you. 
Two, our, our culture really values money. And this guy's got it coming out his ears. And our culture really values power and prestige. Jesus has just told him, give it up, let it go, and come and follow me. Because up till this point, he thinks he knows what it is to be great. And Jesus says, you want to know what true greatness is? You want to know what a real life is like? Give up all of those things, and I'll show you true greatness through a relationship with me. Come and follow me. You want your life to really count on earth and in eternity? Come after me. I end with verse 26 because it says, with God, all things are possible. You might be here this morning and think, I know somebody that God can't reach. I just know a person who's so far gone, there's no way God's ever going to bring that person in. Or maybe you personally are feeling like that this morning. I've just done too many wrong things in my life. I've messed up. I'm telling you, with God, all things are possible. You can't outsin God. I know that's a very harsh way of saying it, but the truth is, if you could, then God wouldn't be God. Because he said, my grace is sufficient. Where your sin abounds, I have much more abounded. You can't defeat a God when he says all things are possible. So thank God the things that are impossible to me are possible with him. The things I can't do, he can. This sets us up, church, for where we're going over the next few weeks. As we move into the Christmas season, we're taking on a a short series called Preposterous because there's nothing impossible with God. Yet when Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel, Gabriel said, Mary, here's what's going to happen. I know you're a teenager, and I know you don't have a husband, but you're going to be found with a child. You know what her response was? How can this be? Preposterous, in other words. What did the angel say back to her? Mary, with God, all things are possible. I leave you with that this morning. I'm going to just ask you to pray with me that we remember as we move through this week, with God, all things are possible, new hope. Let's pray. Father, I'm confident in an auditorium with this many people in it. There's someone right here now who's feeling like it is impossible. Would you remind them that it's not? because of the work that you did through Jesus Christ, we can know salvation and forgiveness of sin. Father, I thank you for your word and how clear it is. Thank you for causing Mark to write it down and Luke to write it down and Matthew to write it down so we had this story of exactly what it looks like to measure up or not measure up and that we can't do it on our own. Father, I thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ. And that we can know that all things are possible with you. Send us out with your blessing for having been here this morning, for looking into your word. I remind us, God, as we take on this week, everything that we come up against that we think is impossible, if it's of you, it is not impossible. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.